Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Madrid. Fluid administration in critically ill patients is a hot topic with dozens of papers published in the last few years. Increasingly, the potential harm we do with fluids is being recognised. Identifying which patients will benefit from fluids and those that won't is critical to maximising benefit while minimising harm. Xavier Monet is a professor of intensive care medicine and a prominent fluid researcher from Paris, and he joins me to discuss the issue of fluid responsiveness. Xavier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for your invitation. Xavier, when we're giving bolus intravenous fluids for patients who are in circulatory shock, what are we trying to achieve with those fluids? Well, basically, um, fluids are infused, I mean, fluid boluses are infused to increase cardiac output. And it's always very important to bear in mind. In fact, fluids are aimed at increasing mean systemic pressure, you know, the upstream pressure of venous return. And then it increases cardiac preload. And in case of preload responsiveness, it increases cardiac output. And eventually it's made for improving tissue oxygenation. It has two main consequences. The first is that the increase in arterial pressure is mainly a consequence of the increase in cardiac output. One should not assess the effects of fluids on arterial pressure, but on cardiac output. And second, we should give fluids only if cardiac output is obviously too low. Again, the main goal is to improve tissue oxygenation. So tissue oxygenation must be impaired. It means that positive tests of fluid responsiveness should not automatically lead to fluid infusion. So Xavier, as you say, the intent is to increase cardiac output. There's been some information come out in recent years that some patients respond to fluids and some don't. What's happening in those that don't? In fact, it's due to basic physiology. In the 80s, um, some authors observed that uh, cardiac output, at that time they measured it with a PA catheter, that cardiac output did not increase in some patients when they gave fluid to these patients. And roughly 50% of the patients do not respond to fluid infusion. So in fact, it's due to physiology to the relationship between cardiac output and cardiac preload, the frank Stalling relationship. It has different slope depending on the value of cardiac preload and for a given preload value, depending on cardiac contractility. So in practice, it means that even if fluid increases cardiac preload, fluid does not always increase cardiac output. In some patients, you give fluid it increases cardiac preload, but cardiac output does not increase. Also, it explains that preload is not preload responsiveness. I mean that a given value of cardiac preload, for instance, a given value of central venous pressure, does not indicate the slope of the relationship, which means that it does not predict fluid responsiveness. So that's basically a physiological reason. With those that do respond to fluids, how beneficial is the effect that they, they have? And what, what do we know about how those that respond uh, continue to behave? 
Uh, indeed, the effects of fluid do not last long. They last 10 minutes on average, and it's quite, um, these are quite new data coming from pharmacodynamics, uh, uh, pharma, pharmacodynamic studies. And even though it likely depends on many factors, depending on the patient, on the degree of vasodilation, the degree of the capillary leak, and the reduction in central blood volume. I mean that in patients with obvious hypovolemia, the increase in cardiac preload and cardiac output is likely persistent after fluid infusion. But in some other patients, especially patients with septic shock, the, the duration of the fluid's efficacy is quite short. Is there a reason for that? What's the rationale behind that? It's mainly due to the capillary leak and to the distribution of fluid in a very vasodilated um, uh, uh, circuit, especially the venous circuit that is very dilated, as you know, of course, in septic patients. And so the dilution of this quite small volume of fluid in this very large compartment likely explains the quite small increase in preload. And in addition, there is the issue of preload responsiveness that, of course, makes that cardiac output does not always increase after preload, as we said just before. Xavier, once we find that a patient does respond to fluid, do they continue to be responsive to fluids? Uh, no, in fact, the fluid responsiveness varies from a time to another. Um, for instance, in septic shock, initially, fluid responsiveness is constant, and that's always very important to bear in mind because vasodilation is strong, relative hypovolemia is deep, and so all patients respond to fluid infusion at the beginning. So it means, by the way, that for the initial fluid infusions, there is no need to test preload responsiveness. But after a few hours, some patients become fluid unresponsive. For instance, you know the Andromeda shock study, um, there was a sub-analysis showing that in patients that were fluid responsive at the beginning, septic patients, only 40% of the patients were responsive two hours later. So you see, it's, it really varies from a time to another, and responsiveness, which might be present at the beginning, then decreases along with time. Xavier, the measurement of oxygen consumption can be quite challenging in clinical practice, but what do we know? I assume that giving our fluids and finding an increase in cardiac output will ultimately lead to an improvement in oxygen delivery and therefore oxygen consumption. Is that the way that it plays out in practice? No, in fact, because again, it's very variable. I mean that um, even when a fluid bolus increases cardiac output, it does not always lead to the improvement in oxygen consumption, the improvement that you expected from fluid. In a study mainly included septic patients uh, a few years ago, uh, we showed that patients were cardiac output increased, I mean fluid responsive patients, um, experienced an improvement in oxygen consumption in only half of the cases. So it means that in 50% of the patients, we gave fluid, cardiac output improved, but oxygen consumption remained unchanged. And in fact, again, it's due to basic physiology, you know, the DO2-VO2 relationship. 
if it's on its flat part, when you give fluid, you increase cardiac output, you increase oxygen delivery, but you do not change oxygen consumption. So again, it means that the effects of fluid are very variable from a patient to another. And for me, it's an argument for monitoring the effects of, of fluid. That's very important. Now, the argument for giving fluids is often that we might not be doing uh, benefit, but we're not doing harm. Is that really true? Uh, yes. Uh, yes and no. It depends on the patients. I mean that on the patients, I mean that in patients with obvious fluid losses, let's imagine a patient with a hypovolemic shock or relative hypovolemia, it's the same. Fluid infusion is required and must be beneficial. The question is, in fact, mainly for septic shock patients, where indeed the effects of fluid are transient, where fluids increase the fluid balance, which is, as you know, harmful. So in this septic shock patients, one should really try to decrease the fluid balance at maximum. We should do that in a personalized way. One should not give fluid in fluid unresponsive patients. One should not give fluid if the risk of fluid infusion is too high, high CVP, high lung water, low PF ratio, etc. One should try to improve fluid efficacy, for instance, by adding vasopressors quite early after the shock onset. And one should remove fluids at the de-escalation phase. Again, in a personalized way, I mean, not in all patients, but only in patients with no preload responsiveness. So it's mainly in septic shock patients that we have indeed a problem with, with giving fluids and we should do that cautiously. And again, by individualizing the, the, the strategy of fluid infusion. That really leads us to the question of how we can determine whether a patient is fluid responsive or not. What are the methods that we can uh, make this determination? That's very important in practice. Again, um, bear in mind the, the, the aim of fluid infusion is to increase cardiac output. Then at best, one should monitor the effects of fluid on cardiac output or surrogates of cardiac output. Not blood pressure. Again, the, the increase in blood pressure is only a consequence of cardiac output increase, which is inconstant. Also, we should assess the improvement in tissue oxygenation. So uh, a careful um, monitoring of the effects of fluid should include cardiac output monitoring and oxygen um, um, uh, tissue oxygenation monitoring, lactate, SpO2, PCO2 gap, et cetera, and organ function. This is mainly, of course, for the, for the most severe patients, for the most complex patients, typically septic shock patients, where we should have this, um, this uh, comprehensive uh, uh, hemodynamic monitoring. Xavier, the... Um the concept of a challenge response has been raised so that there are potentially ways that we can test whether people are responsive to fluids or not. Is there any uh, best way to assess whether people are going to be responsive to fluids? Um, indeed, we have today many tests and indices of fluid responsiveness. Uh, you know, the first one was pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation. 
but they have um, many uh, limitations. They cannot be used in many patients. Passive leg raising is likely a very um, well-demonstrated task, not very easy to perform in some patients. But today we have many other tasks, especially using heartling interactions, the end expiratory occlusion test, the tidal volume challenge that are quite easy to perform in uh, ventilated patients. So in my mind, the, the three ways, the three um, easiest ways to do that are passive leg raising and expiratory occlusion tests in uh, ventilated patients and also the mini fluid challenge, you know, infusing only 100 or 150 mils of fluid and uh, assessing the increase in cardiac output. I guess the key question now is if we implement these sorts of strategies, what's the benefit that we're likely to, to see? Is there any evidence that supports using an approach like this in clinical practice? It's a very good question and, and it's a question that is very often asked. I think that we, we should consider two different settings. In the peri, perioperative setting, you can find some studies, many studies, showing that protocols of hemodynamic monitoring, including an assessment of fluid responsiveness, decreased the rate of complications. So that's quite obvious in this perioperative context. In the intensive care unit, it's different, likely because such a demonstration is much more difficult. I mean that in critical ill patients, many other factors influence prognosis. It's not just because you use passive leg raising that the mortality will decrease. And we know that with many drugs and many strategies. And nevertheless, in the ICU, you, you, you can find some studies, few studies, showing that in septic shock patients, predicting fluid responsiveness led to a decrease in the fluid balance, which is related to outcome. But I'm not sure that any study could at any time show that in these so complex patients, just predicting assessing fluid responsiveness could improve prognosis. But in my mind, it's not a reason why not using this strategy. One last question, Xavier. Um, the recently released classic trial tested the hypothesis that a restrictive approach to fluid management would improve, uh, improve patient outcomes compared with a more liberal or, or standard approach to fluids. In that study, they didn't use a, an assessment of uh, fluid responsiveness. How do you see that trial um, in that context? Very good question again. I think that um, these results are, let's say, they are disappointing, but not very surprising uh, for me. I mean that, of course, if you use this strategy without any individualization of the strategy, without personalizing the strategy, of course, if you do the same in all the patients, you cannot obtain a positive result. And indeed, this is what you said. For instance, if you remove fluids in patients who are in fact preload responsive, you may do harm because you, you decrease preload in patients who are preload responsive, you decrease cardiac output, for instance. Uh, 
So I would much prefer, again, a personalized strategy. In my practice, I remove fluids only in preload and responsive patients, and that's just physiology. No need for any trial uh, for this. So I think that this study, as many other studies, was negative because it did not include, include um, um, let's say, um, a clever uh, personalization of the strategy. And all these studies in this, all such studies in the future will be negative for sure. Xavier, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights into fluid responsiveness. Thank you again, Todd. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.